Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. All right. Um, our text this morning is from 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12. You'll find that on page 1015 in the Bible in the chair in front of you. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. It's me again. Um, I'd like to thank David's dad for the outline for today's sermon. I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you, then I'm going to tell you what I told you. So tell your dad thanks. Um, I don't even know if that's true. I don't know if that's the outline or not. But um, hey, we've come to the end of the Esther series. So we are actually through the scripture, uh, the book of Esther, and we're going to close out with this passage from 1 Peter. Uh, actually, we're going to be looking at selected passages through both chapters 1 and 2. But I'll, I'll say this as a recap. Um, I really just enjoyed Esther. I wasn't sure what I was getting myself into there, but what a fun time to think about ancient times and look how God worked and look at how God was faithful to finish his plan. Looking at a story where the author chose not to name the main character, all those things were just fascinating to me. Uh, I especially enjoyed uh, finding and seeing the application uh, of those truths to our lives here in the modern day. And so um, now I think it's an interesting question. The reason we're in First Peter today is because the question could be, well, how can an ancient story like Esther actually translate to our context? Um, and so let, let's talk about context for just a moment. Um, there are differences in our context from the context that Esther found herself. Um, but there's also major similarities. Let's talk about some of the differences. First of all, I mean, culturally, very different. They didn't drive cars around. You know, they didn't have the internet. They didn't have smartphones, things like that. So uh, th that's a difference for sure. Uh, but um, an another major difference is actually our spiritual context. And I'll explain more what I mean by that in just a moment. So not so much the context of our culture, but uh, I wanna draw attention to the spiritual context as a difference today. Uh, let's talk about some of the major similarities. First, I would say that <laughs> from the time of ancient Persia, the human heart has not changed. The human heart hasn't changed. Sin looks pretty much the same. Maybe different methods of the same sin, but it's the same sin. We still are selfish beings who want what we want and we do what we want to get what we want. On the positive side of that, how, what other similarities, God has not changed. So yes, the human heart still is rotten at birth. That's why we need Jesus. But God has not changed. God is still a God that works. God is still a God that finishes what he started. And so the truths that we have observed in Esther, they have not changed. 
The truths that we observed in Esther have not changed. We're going to look today in 1 Peter. These truths are actually present in this passage, but again, they're in a different spiritual context, which we'll kind of dig into. So what we're going to do today, I think this is the part where I'm telling you what I'm going to tell you. Uh, We're going to look at the truths of Esther, but communicated through the apostle Peter into our spiritual context. It sounds super nerdy, but it's fun, I promise. All right, let me pray, and we'll look at the passage in 1 Peter. Father in heaven, thank you for the sacrament of baptism. What a pleasure it is as a pastor to be able to celebrate both sacraments in one day. Watching you work, watching your promises flow down on the heads of those children, reminding us of the promises you've made to us and then the fruition of those promises, the Lord's Supper all traversing through the word of God. And so I pray for this sermon. I pray for the hearts of our people, including myself, that we would be open to what you have for us through 1 Peter today. Pray these things in the name of Jesus, amen. Uh, because we've not been in 1 Peter, let me just talk a little bit about the, the author, the, the namesake of this book. Peter was an, a, a disciple. So he was one of the 12 that knew Jesus, lived with Jesus, learned from Jesus. Uh, he was a fisherman, and he was called out of his nets or out of his boat to follow Jesus. To give you a quick kind of nutshell, Peter was a strong personality. You can read that all through the Gospels. He, he had strong opinions. He had a strong attitude. He had a strong everything. Everything about Peter was very upfront, very forward. Um, he committed a, an egregious crime against our Lord at the end of Jesus' life. He and Judas both betrayed Jesus. And sometimes we don't think about it that way, but he and Judas both did the same thing. They denied Christ. They, re- they, 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 they rejected Jesus. The difference between Judas and Peter is that Peter was restored by Jesus. He sought forgiveness and he was restored. And so what I love about the epistles, which are written by apostles, um, is that we get to read the words of these people who were strong personalities, unique individuals who have been broken and restored. <laughs> That's who Peter is. He was a, a man who was brought to his end by meeting Jesus and then brought into Jesus by meeting Jesus. He was broken and restored. And if you know people who have been through things that have broken them and they've been restored by Christ, what a sweet time it is to spend with them. And I know that I I love spending time with those kinds of people and reading these kinds of things because I need more of that in my life. I need to come to the end of myself and be restored by Jesus Christ. So that's who is writing this letter today, and that's who is going to kind of guide us through our new spiritual context and these truths that we saw in Esther. So let's get to this idea of our spiritual context. Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1, gets right into it. If you look at verses 3 through 5, we can see a a very succinct and clear description of our spiritual context. So the big difference, spoiler alert, is Jesus. That's the big difference between our context and the context of Esther and Mordecai and the Jews in Persia. So the context of, of of Esther, Mordecai, and the Jews is their hope stood in front of them. It was in their future. They didn't have something to look back at. They're in exile. They're waiting for the Messiah. They don't know if they're going to escape Haman's plan. Their hope was completely in front of them. But as we see from verses 3 through 5, we have something different. Our hope comes from a different place. If you look at verse 3, we can see that we are actually looking backward 
for our source of our hope. Verse 3 of chapter 1, 1 Peter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has, past tense, caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So where is the source of our hope? It's in something that's already happened. Praise God. That's different. That's different than what Esther and Mordecai had. We also realize that we're similar to them, but it's also different. We look forward to the fruition of our hope. Look at verse 4. To an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So we have the past event, Jesus' death and resurrection. We have the, the forward-looking event, the coming, the return of Christ. And our hope is held secure by those two events. And so it's described here in verse 5, in the end of verse 3, it says, in verse 3, he's, again, caused us to be born again to a living hope. That's right now. Living hope, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We have this past source. We have this future fruition. We have a living hope right now. This is our spiritual context. This is our reality. This is different than what Esther and Mordecai had. And the big difference, the huge difference, the reason it is different is Jesus Christ. Jesus happened. That's why it's different. Jesus changes everything. Yes, he changed world history, but he changes everything. This is a truth we have to start grasping, church. He changes everything about every aspect of our lives. What Jesus did, what that means for eternity, who he is and what that makes us. All these things, all these changes, all these realities, they change who we are, they change our experiences, they change the way we think about things, they change the way we do things, they change where our power comes from. All these things has changed because of Jesus. And what's beautiful as we look at 1 Peter is that this difference of Jesus doesn't invalidate any of the truths we learned from Esther, it actually enhances them. So we're going to do, I'm going to run through them rather quickly, but we're going to look how the truths that we learned from Esther are, are here in this passage, and they're, they're, they're different, but they're the same. So look at verses 6 and 7. We're still in 1 Peter 1. Verses 6 and 7, we're going to see the similarities now. So remember from Esther, God works in the mundane. He doesn't always work in big, grand, sky-ripping ways. He, he works in our day-to-day -day lives. Peter is going to enhance this for us. Look at verse 6. In this you rejoice. So this truth about where our hope comes from. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Let's stop there for a moment. Various trials. So yes, God works in the mundane. We're going to see right here that God not only works in the mundane, he actually works through pain. He works through pain. I want to talk about this phrase, various trials. What it means and what Peter's saying is it could be all kinds of things. It could be all kinds of things. Pain is pain. Actually, Peter's giving us permission for us to say that when something hurts, no matter how small it is, that it hurts, that it is pain. As we take a pause and talk about pain just for a moment, I want to say this. It's unhelpful for the Christian life at any point for us to compare ourselves to others. So I think the way we think about that at first is, well, comparing like my performance or who I am or, or the things about me to other people. That's never helpful. 
It makes us either feel inadequate or proud. Those are not things that are helpful to the Christian life. But let's talk about this phrase, various trials. Comparing our pain to others' pain is not helpful to the Christian life. It's not helpful. There's actually two ways that we can see this come to fruition and we can see how they're not helpful. First is when we say things like, well, it could be worse. Or at least I'm not going through what that person's going through. I mean, they've got it so much worse than me. Listen, when we do that, when we compare our pain to others' pain, we are moving into self-reliance. Do you see that? We're saying, well, if, if my pain were that bad, then I would need something. But because it's not that bad, I'm good. The other end of the spectrum is, of course, the pity party. We all love that. We love the pity party. Peter is not, by the way, I think I just discovered a tongue twister. Can we think of one with Peter is giving us permission to not have a pity party? I don't know. Something, something, there's something there. Work it out, somebody. Middle schoolers, I know you're not listening. Figure it out. All right. Um, I lost my train of thought. Anyway, sorry. Um, pity party. What is a pity party? A pity party, I'm going to stop saying it. Okay. Uh, that thing I just talked about is a woe is me. It is, if I could present my pain in such a way, then the people around me would see it and they would give me what I need. Do you see how pity is not relying on Christ? Pity is relying on those around you to meet your needs. Now, it doesn't mean we don't say, I'm in pain. What it means is there's these two extremes, either, no, I'm good, or please, 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 and both of those things are self-reliance. Peter here is freeing us to say, yes, this hurts. But he's also saying, yes, I need Jesus. Because look at what pain is for. Verse 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested, may be found. Okay, so the first thing that pain does for us is it makes our faith precious. <laughs> when we hurt when we come across various trials, we are reminded of our weakness. And we shouldn't go to ourselves or to anyone else to meet that weakness, we have to go to Christ. So we're reminded of our faith in the person who has strength. He goes on. So our, our faith will become precious and maybe a result of, to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So our pain, yes, it's to develop precious faith. It's also to enhance our praise of God. Enhance our praise of God. So we hear this now, God working through the mundane. We saw that in Esther. Here we're seeing Peter say, not only that, God is working through your pain. That sounds awful, <laughs> It sounds awful, but we have to remember, church, Christian, we have to remember that brokenness, that pain, that trial is a strength of the Christian. It's a strength. So when we think about this idea that God's working through pain, we might say something like, well, Ransom, my pain, my problems, they make me feel so weak and helpless. And I say to you as your pastor, amen, let it be. I want to remind you of another apostle named Paul, not Peter, Paul. Paul was a missionary to the Gentiles. That was his special apostle job, all right? And somewhere along the line, he developed some physical ailment. We really don't know what it is. Uh, he referred to it as a thorn in his side, and he recounts in 2 Corinthians that he prayed again and again and again and again for God to remove it. 
It was that painful. Please take it away. Please take it away. And here's the response he got from God. So from 2 Corinthians 12, and God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power, God's power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. How is brokenness a strength to the Christian? Because in our weakness, in our brokenness, where should we run? Where, what resource do we have? The one who is strong, Jesus Christ. Church, God works through pain and he uses it to our benefit. And so as we think about this really hard concept, it actually makes more sense when we remember what God is working toward. If we remember from Esther, what was God working toward through all of those situations that, they, that the characters saw themselves in? He was working towards the salvation of his people. That has not changed. God is not working towards our agenda. He's working towards his own. We're gonna look at the second part of verse seven and verse nine, again from 1 Peter 1. So again, where is this uh, precious faith found? When is the praise and glory of honor and God revealed at the revelation of Jesus Christ, the end of time? And in verse nine, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. God works through pain. He works the mundane because his plan is eternal. And it's about our salvation. I was thinking this week about the idea that God, we, if we're Christians, we believe this, that God is infinitely mighty, He's infinitely wise. He's infinitely loving. And what a waste of time it would be for him to use those things on my plan. <laughs> what a waste of time that would be. I'm not talking about your stuff. Your stuff's really good. My stuff. For God, he would waste his might and wisdom and love on my stuff because my stuff is so insignificant and little. What is he working toward for ransom? He's working towards my eternal satisfaction being with my creator through faith in Jesus Christ. And he's using this short little life that I have to prepare me for eternity. That's what he's using those things for. Not to make me happy. That would be a waste of time. His time. And he doesn't, he's not bound by time. So think about that. God's plans are so much more long-term than ours. They're so much more significant than ours. And God is using his wisdom and might and love to prepare us for the thing that will ultimately satisfy. And it's not found in this life. We then come to the question, well, how is God working? How is God working in our lives? And remember, we saw God working in, in Esther and Mordecai's life through simple obedience in extraordinary circumstances. So they weren't, again, being, being told through a, through a burning bush, here's the mighty thing I need you to do. They were simply called to obey in the circumstances they were in. And we also saw that God was working despite Haman's awful, evil plans. And so the same thing is true for us. First of all, God works in our lives through obedience, but our obedience is different. Our context is different. You realize Esther and Mordecai were obeying, believing that, that hopefully it would turn out okay. God told the Israelites, if you obey, I, you will be my people. And so there was this contingency in that part of the covenant at that time. We obey in a different covenant. We obey in a different level of the covenant. We obey, God works in our lives through hope-realized obedience. <laughs> hope-realized obedience. We're going to jump down to verses 13 through 19 of 1 Peter 1 and see what I'm talking about. 
So verse 13, therefore, so Peter's talking about all these wonderful promises, all these wonderful things that God has already done. Our hope comes from those things. And then he says this, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. He goes on to say, remind us that we're called to be holy as God is holy. He says in verse 16, it again, be holy for I am holy, talking about God. And you shall call, he, if you call on him, verse 17, as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of the exile. So first, Christian, in our spiritual context, we are to be planning for obedience. It's not something that just happens on accident. We have to look at our lives, recognize our sin, and be preparing our minds, girding your loins, whatever you want to say, preparing ourselves to live this life as God wants to have us live. But it's not just to grind it out, to pull up our bootstraps and get moving. No, we have a real reality that empowers this, that motivates this. And it is found in Jesus Christ. Verses 18 and 19, listen to the reason we live this way knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Mordecai and Esther obeyed, hoping that God, that things would turn out well. We obey in our lives, knowing they've turned out well already. You see the difference? We're obeying from an infinite resource, a sure foundation. We don't have to worry about whether our obedience is going to get us there or not. We are already there. God has already worked. And he's saying, because of that work, because of that precious gift of the blood of Jesus Christ, follow me. As we move into chapter 2, Peter describes how this obedience is not just like an individual walking the path alone, he actually shows how our obedience, how we live and learn together, we're, we're a, a, the church is based on the foundation of Christ and we're these stones kind of interlocking, building up this kingdom of God. And so we, we live and learn together, we obey together, we remember the promise, these sure things of Christ together. And then he continues in verses seven and eight of chapter two to use this language about those who are not in Christ. So remember, Haman, his evil plans ended up destroying himself. And we tied that to the fact that, that Satan's evil plans to destroy Christ ended up destroying his power. And we see the result of this in verses seven and eight of chapter two. So the honor is for you who believe, but those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. What we're trying to see here is that because Jesus Christ has come, God's plan is made very clear, and whether you accept or reject Jesus Christ, he is the immovable object. He's the unstoppable force. Everything breaks and moves with him and his plan. God is working now despite his enemies. We come to the passage that Jacob read today, and church, what a rich passage. We're at the idea here that God is working 
until the end. He finishes what he starts in these verses in 9 through 12. There's so much information here. You could probably do a whole series just on these few verses. But listen, what you're going to hear, I'm going to read this nice and slow. What you're going to hear in verses 9 through 12, you're going to hear who you are if you are in Christ. You're going to hear whose you are if you are in Christ. You're going to hear your mission that you're on in this world. You're going to hear your destination. All these things are present in these few short words. So I'm going to read this to you and pause as needed to describe things. But here we go. Verse 9. But you are a chosen race. So church, I'm going to stop there. This is going to take like five hours, so you know. Um, Listen, if you want to check up on what I'm about to say, you can read this in Ephesians 2, the second half. We are no longer, if we are in Christ, no longer identified by the color of our skin. We are identified by being a new race, and that race is God's people. We're unified under Christ. We have a new identity. We belong to him. We are a royal priesthood, it continues. Listen, you don't need me to connect with God. I'm not a priest. I'm not a priest. I'm a pastor. There's a difference. There is no more spiritual hierarchy. Do you hear this? You don't need someone else to connect you to God. You only need Jesus Christ. In the blood and the work and the righteousness of Jesus Christ, if you are in him, you have direct access to God the Father, the creator of all things. He loves you. He knows your name. He hears your voice. We're a holy nation. We are not Americans first. We belong to Christ. We happen to live in America, which is quite a blessing. We belong to a different nation. We're alien to this place. We've been claimed by the blood of Jesus Christ, which brings us to the next phrase of people for his own possession. The words here don't do it justice in English, but what this means is that God has bought something. We know what he spent on it. It was very expensive. It was the blood of his only son. He bought us, and we are his treasured, protected possession. He guards us. He holds us close to his heart. Keeps us safe. Skipping to the end of verse 9. Not do that. Hold on. Back to that. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you. This is the first glimpse of our mission. So thinking of all these things that are true, we have a mission on this planet, and it's to proclaim the excellencies of God. To who? Certainly to each other at worship, but to the world, church. If we believe that what Jesus says he's done, he's done. We shouldn't be able to shut up about it. We need to tell people about Jesus and what he's done for us sinners. And it's not just calling Jesus excellent, it's reminding us what he's done. He's called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have mercy. This is who we are. This doesn't need to be activated. It's already been activated, past tense. This is set on the the cross of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. We are forgiven. We are restored by Jesus. So we come to our second 
part of our mission. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. I'm thankful that we got Romans 6 coming up. It's a good opportunity to focus in on that idea. What does it mean to kill sin? What does it look like? How do we do that out of the promises of God? We'll start that in a couple of weeks. He continues in verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. And he gives a very practical example. So when they speak against you as evildoers, as if that would ever happen, um, they may see your good deeds and glorify God when on the day of visitation. We're to abstain from our passions. But again, what is our mission? To be bringing those who are lost in the world into the family of God so that they will see God when Christ returns and praise him. We have a mission, we have an identity, we have a destination, the day of visitation. All these things, because of Jesus Christ, are secure. Do you see this, church? So, yes, Esther was a a happy ending kind of story. We talked about this a little bit last week. Yes, the people were saved from Haman's plan and all that turned out great. But remember, it's temporary. The Jews had a lot more battles to go. Their, Their future was uncertain. They were still in exile when things turned out okay for Esther and Mordecai and those folks. Our story's different. Our spiritual context makes our ending much more secure, much more joyous because our story, our story in Jesus Christ is full of permanent promises that have already been made true. Do you see? They've already been made true. We're not waiting for them to happen. They happened in Jesus The ending of our story is set in stone. There is no other ending. It's set in stone because of Jesus. And so while Esther and Mordecai, you better believe there's some nail biting going on, right? Is this gonna work out? We don't have that. We know how it turns out. We know what happens because of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, as we approach the Lord's table, we're participating in a renewal of hope. A renewal of hope. Think about all the images we have here. We can renew our hope by remembering the root or the source of our hope, the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. So it's calling our mind backward to Jesus, the source of our hope. It's calling our mind forward. You realize the Lord's Supper is a rehearsal dinner. We're we're rehearsing for when we are with Jesus and eating the Lord's Supper of the Lamb, right? It's, It's what we're doing. We're rehearsing for what it's like to be in heaven with our Father feasting. It's also nourishment for now. We eat food, we drink drink to nourish our bodies. We need Jesus now, our living hope, to nourish our souls. And that's the promise of the Lord's Supper. When we come, because we believe in Jesus, we've been baptized, we've made that profession that yes, I am a wretched sinner. The confession we made in the bulletin today was I'm the, the, the worst of all sinners. If we believe that is true and Jesus still loves us and his, his work still counts for us, We believe those things. We've made that profession of faith. We're called this morning forward to be nourished in our wretched selves by the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. We're reminded of our living hope. If you are here this morning, and a lot of the things I've said 
don't make sense, not because I didn't say them right, but um, which happens from time to time. Uh, but you don't know, like Jesus, sinner, like he did what? If those things, if you're uncertain about those things, if you just flat out don't believe those things, the scriptures make it clear, do not come forward. This, it doesn't make sense for you to come forward. This is a meal for those who, as they walk the aisle, say, I'm a sinner, I need Jesus, I have Jesus, I'm secure. Even though I don't always feel it, that's the truth. And so if you don't believe this morning, I pray that you would maybe listen to the sermon over again, listen for the things that don't make sense. Like, what does that mean? What does that mean? Talk to somebody here, talk to a family member, talk to a friend, anybody. Don't leave those questions unanswered. Or this morning, if you have a sin in your life, you refuse to confess, the Bible also makes it clear the supper is not for you. And so we're gonna take just a moment. We've already confessed our sins, but another opportunity just to evaluate where we're at and to thank the Lord for his blessing and then I'll gather us together to have the supper together in just a moment. Father in heaven, thank you for this day of worship. Thank you for the opportunity to have the Lord's Supper together as a family. We have it every week when we can, but it's always a special occasion because as a family, we're being renewed in our hope. And I pray that that is true for this time today, that we, as we ingest a little bit of bread and we drink down juice or wine, whatever we we pick out, Lord, that it would be a moment where we feel you filling us up with a reminder that what you did for us, you did before we ever existed, before we sinned. And you did it anyway, knowing about those things. You did it in love and might and wisdom. And you've called us into that thing and you've told us how it's all gonna end. Those who are in Christ will praise God forever, satisfied with their creator. And I pray that those two things, those, that A and that B, that start and that destination would inform us this day, this week, us as a church as we go forth to proclaim your excellencies. I pray that those who don't know you would come to know you and that they would know living hope. I pray that. Bless this time. Thank you for this church. Thank you for this supper. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.